0: Welcome to She Talks Health with Sophie Shepard. Today's woman has a lot of questions about their health and lifestyle choices, but where can you get the right answers? The answer is here and the time is now. Here is your host, Sophie Shepard. Welcome back to the show, ladies. This is your host of the
1: She Talks Health podcast, Sophie Shepard. And today we are getting back to basics with one of my favorite subjects, the importance of what is going in your mouth and into your body. When I was first so sick with Hashimoto's and all my subsequent issues with IBS and SIBO and well, you know the story. Um, I did not know what to eat everything seemed to bother me and I could feel like I just was not getting enough or adequate nutrition. I wasn't absorbing it well and I certainly didn't know what to eat. This was back in the days when I still ate uh, all the gluten and all the things that were bothering my stomach and what I learned along the way was that our farming practices in this country Kind of screwed up actually, and they need a lot of help. Um, And so today I have a really amazing, amazing guest for you. Jennifer Maynard is the CEO and co founder of Nutrition for Longevity. And today we're going to chat with you about why she made a switch from the biotech and pharmaceutical space into the food is medicine space by providing farm-to-table meal delivery service. Um, And we're going to talk all about some really exciting topics like regenerative farming, why it's so important, and how it's different than the modern farming that we have right now, and why um, plants and humans are so interconnected. So Jennifer, welcome to the She Talks Health Show. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So excited. So let's dive right in with, I love reading in your bio that you worked in the biotech and pharmaceutical space for more than 20 years, but now you're doing this farm to table thing. So tell us like what happened? When did you make this complete switch into a new passion and why did you do it?
2: Yeah, so I started, so I grew up, I was born and raised in Alaska on a homestead. So we grew kind of almost all of our own food and kind of lived with nature. Like I lived in basically a 20 by 20 foot cabin, no running water, like pretty roughing it, but on 200 acres. So I had all this land around me and I think it grounded me to nature. I've always been just drawn to that and I've always loved growing food and um, just seeing that process. And so all my life, no matter where I've worked, I've always had very large gardens I I would call it large gardens because now that I also manage a farm (laughs) now a garden looks even a quarter acre garden which is the the one I had before I launched the farm looks very small to me so um so I did large scale gardening I would call it um but it was a huge passion of mine and my family ate really healthy and we grew a lot of our food in regenerative ways um And so I just, I kind of took that for granted that that was just the way I lived and my family was very healthy and I appreciated that. Um, And I actually went into the pharmaceutical or biotech industry um, when I was younger, before I was in college, my uncle um, contracted HIV and then eventually passed away from AIDS. And I was just very frustrated that the medical industry at that time just they didn't know how to handle it. I thought the standard of care was so low. He suffered immensely. And I just thought, I'm going to be part of the solution. I'm, I'm going to change this. And I want to be part of the healthcare movement to do that. And I was so excited. Um, I graduated. I actually started as microbiology biochemistry. And then my senior year biotechnology started. And I thought this could be the answer to all of these problems of these acute illnesses where we don't really know how to handle them. So um, I added that to my major and I actually ended up moving into the biotech industry, um, working in the areas of HIV, AIDS, hemophilia, um, different genetic disorders that people can't just eat healthier. They're, they really like hemophilia, for example, they're missing a clotting factor in their blood clotting cascade, cascade, and it has to be supplemented with exact factor eight protein, and you can't get that from food. So I think In the areas of acute illness um, and specialty medicine areas i feel like we've actually made incredible progress so i was really passionate working in those areas but as i moved up into you know higher and higher levels you you get a much broader macro view of the whole industry and you know when i was just working in certain areas of late stage cancer and um, areas like hemophilia and hiv aids you know, you get really excited about the work you're doing and you you get to see your patients and it's, it's really exciting to see the progress. But at the macro scale, if you look at what's happening with chronic illness, we're not gaining any traction. In fact, we're completely losing that battle. And I thought, well, all the research shows like 80% of our chronic illness can be solved with lifestyle changes. So why are more resources not going in? We have it backwards. We're spending 80% plus of our resources on the pill and the injection to also treat chronic illness. And we're doing almost nothing with food, which is probably the lowest cost and the easiest intervention that we can make. And we're not like getting the education out there to the general population of how much you can actually do with food. We treat it as just purely prevention. Like, you know, you have this healthy yoga group and they're eating, you know, their, their vegan diet and that's just prevention. That's great for them. But I am already sick or, you know, so we focus so much on sick care. You know, I can't do anything. I'm already sick. I just need a pill. We don't do enough on also, intervention with food food is medicine so not just the prevention piece which is awesome that's how I live my lifestyle but I you know I may get sick my children might get sick my grandpa my my grandmother just got sick so we made sure she was eating all of our food and you see a major shift in people when I think they take care of themselves and eat healthy so um, for me personally what what was the biggest shift I was already thinking in that direction but my father-in-law um, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And we just saw over just a few years, his health just spiral out of control. And we saw his pill boxes, which would normally be like a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, and that whole pill box was just for one day. And he had his, it just ruled his whole life. Like before breakfast, I got to take this pill. During breakfast, I got to take these three pills. After breakfast, I got to take this. Before lunch, I got to do this. And it just it took over his whole life. And even though he was on all these drugs, his health continued to spiral out of control. And so he came to visit us. We were actually living in Switzerland and he came to visit us and he said, they're going to put me on insulin. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> we're intervening here. <laughs> um, so we got him on a healthy diet. We got him just walking, n- not any extreme exercise. And over the years, he's, you know, now almost out of pre pre-diabetic stage so seeing that much of a shift in someone um, with just lifestyle changes I said I can't wait anymore and if I look at farming which I've always been really involved in the farming industry is struggling and and producing enough healthy food Um, and organic farming for sure is struggling and there's a lot of reasons why and then the health I just feel like again in healthcare, we're spending 80% on diseases that could be treated in a different way so that's where I just eventually said I'm done I'm quitting my job I'm becoming a farmer <laughs> because my husband and I bought a farm and that's what we started with we wanted to really um, produce first clean food and then the end game was to get into the meal kitting, which is how do we streamline the supply chain of food so you can get food from point A to point B in a really efficient way. You can cut out the 35% of waste that happens between the farm and a grocery store and grow more clean food um, and have less middlemen so we can actually do it in an affordable way. So that was our kind of mission. And we wanted to do it through like a meal program because we wanted to have it very tailored so people don't have to think about the macros and all the complexities of having a really good diet, especially like our base diet is vegan gluten-free and a lot of friends that I know um, have gluten sensitivities or celiac disease. And so they have a hard time getting really good healthy food. That's easy. So they got to think about it. There's a lot of planning. So I thought, okay, we got to make this easier. It's really hard in the U.S to eat healthy and it shouldn't be, it should be, should be the base. Right. And then if we want to eat junk food, fine. That's like, you know, that should be a treat, N- not that it's a healthy treat, but like if I have a piece of cake, I don't deprive myself and, and never eat anything. Sometimes at a birthday I'll have a piece of cake. I know what it's doing to my body and I'm okay with that. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. But I don't eat it every day.
1: Absolutely. So, I always say, um, I love that you just brought that up. Cause I always say to, to my clients, like, look, it's one thing to to eat the cake and not know what it's doing but once you understand it then it's a choice and it's an empowered choice for you to occasionally have that and know what the repercussions are but the problem becomes when we're just kind of mindlessly eating and not realizing how it's affecting us then we end up in a place like your your father-in-law right or we're just like wow okay I'm now on you know a million medications and my, my my health is failing and thank you so much for sharing like that whole, (laughs) that whole journey. Like, I just think everyone is going to find that so fascinating because it's just, it, it just goes to show why these two things don't have to be necessarily separate either. You know, like you were saying, there are, there are certain places where, you know, conventional medicine is 100% necessary. And then 80% of the Chronic illness that we're seeing in the country, like you said, can can be um, supported uh, more effectively with lifestyle interventions, mm-hmm. most notably, you know, food, exercise, sleep, you know, stress reduction, yeah. those types of things. And so that's, you know, that's what I do in my my practice. We call it dress stress for health success, yes, <laughs> diet, absolutely. rest, exercise, stress reduction, and and awesome. um, specific supplementation when necessary. Because, well, maybe that's a good transition into to something that I definitely want to make sure we cover is. I guess, why do, do we need this type of farming that you, you, you know, you, you're calling it regenerative farming. Can you can you explain what that is? Why is this different than kind yeah. of the conde- c-
2: conventional farming and how does that relate to like nutrition value, I guess? Yeah. So, I mean, part of, so I knew I wanted to farm and I knew I wanted to, to use regenerative farming for a lot of reasons. So what regenerative farming focuses on is um, regenerating the soil. Everything's about what's happening below our feet. And as um, as much as we focus on science, and, you know, and and again, I was fascinated when I was just um, in college. They were just starting the Human Genome Project, which is to sequence the human genome and understand our DNA. And then it expanded into the gut microbiome, and then eventually it's starting to move into the soil microbiome, so we can actually understand what's happening below our feet. I mean, it's fascinating to me a teaspoon of soil has more microbes than how many people we have on this entire planet. Yet we know about, yes, yes. Oh my goodness. we We know, you know, if we compare it to how much we know about the human body, we know about our big toe worth of, of information about the soil microbiome, but it's so important. And everything we start to learn about it is like mind blowing. Like it's just such an incredible thing. So But what's scary is with a lot of our modern farming practices, we're completely decimating the soil microbiome. We're even creating tons of extinct microbes that we don't even know yet the health benefits of. But the ones that we are researching um, are just absolutely fascinating. So one thing is um, with tillage and all the chemicals we use, and monocropping we start losing the biodiversity in our soil and that's what's key in soil is not only the population but that it's a that it's a diverse population and it's just like when we talk about human health and diversity and the importance of diversity in your gut microbiome and all those things that's the same for soil and that's because um like this one of the biggest reasons we do it is that essentially like if if you break down the holobiome of a plant. So that's all of its different microbiomes. You have the air microbiome, but we focus mainly on the rhizosphere microbiome, which is this where the soil and the roots touch each other Okay. And, and kind of a little bit surrounding that. And that's because that's essentially the plant's immune system. That's its neural network. It's actually so similar to the gut microbiome. It's incredible when you look at the two side by side, it's actually so similar. Um, but that's again where its immune system is so if you look at a plant part of its holobiome is passed down from its mother seed and part of it it self selects what it needs to survive so the more biodiversity you have you have to look at it as this collective pool of dna so if you grow monocrops they start to build up also kind of monocrop organisms under the ground and there's less of that biodiversity to help it defend itself if there's a stress so for example if there's I mean, a drought condition pause once. Can yeah you just
1: describe um mono cropping is that i think that's when that's why our soils are so depleted right it's like when you continuously do the same crop in the same place is that right
2: am i it's feeling? one aspect of the soil being depleted but it's mainly it's it's the average farm in the u.s grows two crops maximum so ours grows several hundred ah. um and, and when you do that, you're using the same chemicals. You're typically using a lot of mechanization, so tillage, which disrupts the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because a lot of soil microorganisms, they like to be left alone, especially fungus. And fungus is what creates this, like, framework for the neural network to survive and communicate. So when we till, we're actually creating too much aeration and we break up the soil structure. Okay. And then when we don't give back to the land we just use chemicals... Um, you got to think of the soil um, as like a sponge, or it's it should be a sponge. You should have all this soil organic matter that can absorb water. So, for example, the U.S. used to have 11% soil organic matter on average. Now it's down to about 1%, and every 1% we gain back, we can save about 170,000 gallons of water per acre. So all the drought issues we're having, um, a lot of that we could start to solve if we if we get this sponge back intact and and it can actually hold in that water. Oh my goodness. The other thing is we've lost about two-thirds of our carbon store. Um, so a lot of atmospheric carbon, so our CO2 gas, which is causing our you know global warming, the soil could be a huge sponge to sequester that back into the ground. So when you use regenerative farming and you use composting, you start sequestering carbon back into the ground and you start the natural, like, Equilibration or, or balancing of this this mini ecosystem that's happening with your your plants And it's pulling that back in and you get this incredible nutrient exchange and you can't do that without a biodiverse um, Soil microbiome got it so okay. everything we do in regenerative farming is to build that back up So we use composting which is to add Layers of organic matter back onto the farm so we can build up that organic matter um, we keep the ground covered as much as possible. So most farms, they're just completely wiping everything out. They want just dirt because that's less weeds. Then they'll spray it with a lot of herbicides and then they'll they'll plant it with their crops. Um, but that leaves the dirt, com- it, well, it turns soil into dirt. It leaves it completely exposed. So just like your skin, it needs protection from UV light, from mm. rain. Um, so like a regenerative farm can, as far as erosion goes, because you keep the ground covered, you have about 700% less erosion. So all this erosion that goes into our rivers and then creates dead space in our oceans, you can prevent that by keeping the ground covered. Um, And then things like um, building up native pollinator habitats. So we do a lot of hedgerows, which also help with water retention as well and they're perennial crops, so they stay. their root mass stays in the ground, so they build up this incredible soil microbiome, but they also provide habitats for native species, which is really important in agriculture because we've lost 80% of our insect biomass in the last 30 years, which if you think of the food cycle, that's really frightening. Um, and what's happening is the invasive species are starting to outnumber our native species, so to pollinate our, our, our crops, um, instead, we have a lot of insects eating the crops. So with organic farming, you have to be really, really intentional in what per, um hedgerows you grow so you can build up those native species and habitat for those so they can thrive on your farm. And, you know, every year you're regenerating the farm, you see more of these beneficial insects show up. Like we have so many ladybugs on our farm now, just after a few years of focusing on this, and they're an incredible... Species that helps take out a lot of other invasive species on the farm and monarch butterflies and things like that. So, we have dedicated pollinator habitats on the farm that build that up as well. So, everything again is about regenerating this ecosystem where you can achieve this balance with the soil, with the plants, with the insects, so you don't have to use chemicals and so you can use less water and it eventually hits this equilibrium where those things wouldn't even be needed and it becomes actually easier.
1: This is incredible. I mean, I, this is amazing. You're talking about, this is so much bigger than the individual farm. This is so much bigger than the individual person. This is our whole earth we're talking about protecting here.
2: Yeah. And, and agriculture, what people don't realize, um, there's some incredible um, books that have been published by very um, key scientists or, or communities of hundreds of scientists and even the, the United Nations published me, uh, meta-studies, which are when they take thousands of studies and pool them together. And they said the absolute lowest cost and fastest way that we could reverse climate change would be by moving towards regenerative farming. So just as an example, if we converted all of our electricity to solar in the, in the U.S., um, Sorry, correct, sorry, across the globe, it would still take us a hundred years to start reversing climate change. If we just converted 30% of our farms to regenerative farming, we could do it in just a few years. So, I mean, it's magnitudes different um, of what we could do. So there's a lot that farming can impact beyond just healthy food. It can not only help with, like we talk about in our mission, it's reviving human health and planetary health because the environmental aspect is just as important.
1: This is mind blowing. And also, I would imagine as someone at the front of this exciting and also very frustrating that that this isn't (laughs) happening faster, that people aren't understanding this and making this happen. I I wonder if you actually just, I'm just curious, I wasn't planning on asking this, did we used to do this? And then we stopped because of, you know, commercialization? Or have we never done this? Or why aren't we? like seizing this and
2: just going yeah. for it. Is it about politics and money as usual or what? It's a combination. I mean, of course, um, but it's a combination. If you look at the, the history of farming in the U.S., I mean, in the 1800s, 98% of, of America was farmers. Um, now it's like about 1%. So you have a lot fewer people um, growing food and, and throughout the history, it's, it's just incredible because the, the two biggest things that affected, um, well, I guess there's three things that affected our food system is the, the world war, world war one and world war two. When, when a lot of the um, Americans that had gone overseas to fight these, um, these battles, they were exposed to some of the cities in Europe and they were like, I don't want to go back to my family farm. I want to live the city life. And I want to get out and, you know, meet someone and do this. So they didn't go back to their family farms and you saw major, um, urbanization starting. So the development of our big cities had a huge effect on our food system. So what happened is we built our cities, and if you think of how we colonized the entire U.S., um, we built our cities around the most fertile land, right? You, you, you start to congregate. So actually most of the most fertile land, if you look at heat maps, is completely covered by asphalt and cement. And then it pushed the farms onto less fertile land where they started to have problems. And then what happened is all the small farms also started selling their valuable land um, near the the fringes of urban locations um, and cities. And so the small farms moved out and out and out, and then you had kind of big farms start. And that's where I would say you had the biggest change and probably around the Great Depression. So we were already, damaging the land and it's part of the dust bowl. Yes, part of it was drought, but part of it was already mechanization, overusing the land. Um, Even if you look at how most of the U.S. was also colonized, it was like literally the biggest international recruiting ever was bringing over farmers from Europe to help the railroads build up their market. So obviously you got to have people in the U S to build like the intercontinental railroad and things like that. So they literally, if you look at advertisements come free land in the U S. So it was never, it never had the full value because it was like, you're getting it for free or it's super cheap. And if it doesn't work, we'll just give you another piece of land more West. So they could just bring people as far West as possible. Um, So you already had like, they called it bonanza farming. You already had like with even mules tillage with like 100 mules that they would line up and they would do already then monocrops and and this is like late 1800s that they were doing this so, wow. so this we is do have way, way, a history way of doing this yeah way 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 back and then if you look at the great depression a lot of that was also related to farming we had for the first time the risk of massive famine in the u.s And that's actually the pivotal moment when we changed our food system to a lot of processed food because you had this massive panic. Our children are malnourished. They're dying of of hunger for the first time ever and and malnourishment. So what do we do? We want the cheapest food as possible. We're going to fortify it like crazy. So when did we get super processed white bread out of the Great Depression? When did we get American cheese, super processed American cheese? When did we get creamy peanut butter? Like, all these super processed foods came out of massive hysteria and the need for cheap food really fast. The problem is we never cycled out of it. (laughs) So it just became our modern food model. It was super cheap. We have in the US, we spend the the least of any country in the world per capita on food. We spend the most on healthcare. So obviously there's there's a problem there. We're only the 34th healthiest developed country. Um, So, but we have the cheapest food, but we have this cheap food came out of the great depression. And again, then the marketing, you know, you could, you could really focus on fear-based marketing because people had been through for the next 50 years, they had lived through that and they had true fear of starvation so then in the 40s and 50s, you had what they called the green revolution, which I find really ironic. And that's when all the mechanization, major tractors, most farms before then had like a mule. Um, and they did a lot of stuff by hand. That's when we brought massive tractors into play. And that's also where we had a lot of chemicals left over from World War Two. And we realized ammonia is used for, chem- you know, ammunition and, and uh, creating weapons. And we have a huge stockpile of it, we can actually convert that to chemical fertilizers. And so all these problems with um, not being able to generate enough food, we can solve with chemicals. How scary is that? Yeah. So, So I would say our biggest farm pivot was the Great Depression. And it's just kind of multiplied ever since then. And now we're at a state, people are like, well, why don't we change it now? It's so obvious. But what a, a lot of people don't realize is farmers are most farmers are in extreme poverty themselves. So the average farm in the U.S. is two million dollars in debt. It's the number one suicide rate profession in the U.S. because it's such a high stress profession. Because it's getting harder with climate change. So you have super volatile weather, and you have massive debt. So when you're when you have farmers in a corner and they can barely feed their families they're buying all this processed food. They're not even eating their own food. The the vegetables are growing because they can get cheaper, um, you know, other stuff in the store. Um, Their families aren't healthy. They're not healthy and they're just trying to survive. So if you ask a farmer to change their practices that they were taught by their father and their father's father um, and take any risk on their farm and being the generation that loses the family farm, they're not going to do it. And that's where a lot of the resistance is, is, They need financial support and subsidies to start going to them to transition and they need more education about how this, you know, give it three years and somebody can help subsidize that and then it's golden. It's going to be easier than you farm today, but it takes about three years to start achieving that balance and it's really hard. Those first three years are really hard. So most farmers don't want to take that risk. They can't. It's not even that they don't want to. They literally can't do it and survive. So we have to start changing that. We have to support regenerative farmers. We got to lift up that industry. And things are starting to happen there that are really interesting that I think is going to really send that moving quickly. Um, One is carbon farming. So farmers are starting to be incentivized with credits to reverse carbon um, to do this carbon sequestration I talked about. And that could be a big game changer. So if companies, for example, want, to use social responsibility credits and say we're helping the environment, they can buy these carbon credits, which I think is actually kind of awesome, like finally putting a value to the environment. Um, And then you have things like what we're realizing with COVID-19, that being having chronic illnesses do make you more susceptible to these other things. And unfortunately I think that's kind of the new norm. So you saw suddenly organic food purchasing going through the roof because people are now realizing it's not just a nice to have, it's kind of a must-have. Um, so they're they're starting to pay that premium. So anyway, I could go on mm, about no. farming for a long time on on how that system originally broke and how it's really hard now to get out of that cycle.
1: Yeah, thank you for actually going into the whole history. I think that that's I, I personally find it fascinating. I hope the listeners do too because you know w- where all them connected to is where you just landed, which is now we're in a, a global pandemic where, organic food and vitamin C and zinc and all these things are going off the shelf. Right. And, um, it's really fascinating because you and I, you know, um, have learned this information. We've learned other information that makes our buying practices like, like a necessity to buy organic food. And yet, um, for for most people either it's too expensive and unattainable or it just doesn't seem like well why would i spend my dollars there you know we we just don't equate it to the quality of life and the prevention or the intervention like you mentioned earlier of chronic disease and now with this you know mortality that everyone is facing um you know, everyone wants to get kind of get a leg up, which of course you would want that. Yeah. And so now we have this. I think, I believe that there's this shift. There, there is a shift. Some people are like, "No, I'm going to drink more," and I, you know, and that's yeah. totally fair. Um, yeah. and then other people are like, "Man, this is the time I've been ignoring my health for yeah. how many years?" I mean, I can't tell you, um, Jennifer, how many more clients I actually have now because of COVID because they're kind of at home thinking, well, I've been dealing with my period issues for so long and they're so debilitating and I don't have work to distract me or I've been dealing with GI issues for so long and now I have to deal with them. And so what you're doing is you are kind of creating the movement from this level that people don't even know about, you know, and and we're so grateful to you for that. Um, I wonder if you could just chat with us a little bit about, your, um, you said it's really hard. The first three years are really hard. Why, why is it so challenging? And do you see a role for you or for other people? Like, how can we help this be easier? You know, how can we make this process go faster or whatever? Yeah.
2: So there's a few things. Part of it is most of the innovation in farming has been around chemical development, GMO crop development and mechanization. So, organic farming kind of is a bit out of all of those. <laughs> um, so, they kind of got left behind. Um, so, there's a lot of innovation needed. And when I say innovation, I don't, I, you know, we, we kind of talk about in farming terms like we need to deconstruct and kind of go back to the basics and then understand what are some mechanizations you could implement that wouldn't damage the soil. For example, we literally have to be old school when we put mulch in our rows because there's no uh, mechanical, like, instrument right now and we're developing some but you know how do you quickly put mulch in a row Um, because it's a byproduct of the tree industry and so we have loads and loads and loads of of wood mulch that we put in our rows and we put in our roads and things like that and then it eventually breaks down and creates great soil organic matter because again everything's around that soil organic matter but right now like you basically are taking wheelbarrows down a row so it's kind of hard labor and most people these days don't want to do that kind of work Um, so finding mechanization that can drop that quickly down a row, you're still doing the good work of, you know, being a steward of the land and adding that organic matter, but you have a little bit of mechanization to take the hard back breaking labor out of it. So I think some innovation could be really beneficial in the industry. And then, like I said, just shifting some of the subsidies, the way we subsidize farming in the U S it's basically. I think 80% of the the last stat I saw, 80% of the subsidies go to five crops. And almost all of those are for meat production. So 80% of our farms in the US, just so everyone's aware, goes to meat production, so grain. So if we could also eat a little bit less meat, like we talk a lot about reducetarian, even though we have a vegan diet and a pescatarian diet, we say, you know, really focus on reducetarian. It's great for the environment. It's great for human health. Like, and there's different You know, there's even certain um, restrictive diets that meat is an important component of it. Um, But long term, that's what we really advocate is a little bit less meat and we can focus more on vegetable production. You know, um, let's pause. Let's pause there and relate it back to the people who are listening, because
1: um, what you're saying is not eliminate, it's reduce. Right. So it's like, guys, you know, we 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 do, you know, want yes. to have healthy proteins in our in our body and we can get a lot of healthy proteins from plants we can also get you know um healthy proteins from fish and and animals but we don't need as much as we i think as, as much as we're consuming and we certainly um can be also more selective about the types of animal protein that we are that we're yeah, eating absolutely. right i mean that's the other part is like if you are buying a grain fed cow um you know you are then eating uh, a lot of inf- inflammation essentially and you're uh, you know to to Jennifer's point like affecting the entire global environment so it's not like just don't ever eat meat if eat if eating meat is helpful for your body then please do so but make sure that it's a good choice you know like look for that pasture red um pasture raised the organic like look for the jennifer version of the the animal farms that are treating the the animals well you know letting them go on pasture and eat grass that's what they're supposed to do not be eating gmo soy and corn and um, gluten, then you're eating that,
2: <laughs> and that's like, and that's what part of regenerative farming is as well. Like we have goats and chickens and ducks on the farm, we don't eat them, but they are helping regenerate the soil. Like they serve a purpose on the farm, and they have a lot of space to roam around and and um, do their work because hooved animals are really important for regenerative farming. You don't have to do it, but it definitely accelerates the process. And we need a lot of help in the U- not just in the U.S. globally. Um, and hoofed animals were a part of our ancestry. Like we had roaming animals like buffaloes and things like that. And, um, that doesn't happen anymore. So you don't have that natural cycle being created. So there is an important part that animals play in agriculture. It just needs to be balanced. We overdo it and we over concentrate it. Um, so that's why I tell people, like I even encourage people to flip the way As Americans, we've been trained to eat. If you go to a restaurant, what do you do? You order an entree, which is usually a massive slab of meat, and then you order a side dish, and it's like a half cup of broccoli or something. (laughs) And I tell people to flip that. Like, only 1 in 10 Americans get enough fruits and vegetables a day, and that's even what's recommended, which if you look at longevity regions, they eat about twice even what we get recommended to eat. So if only 1 in 10 people are even eating the recommended amount in America – And people in longevity regions are even eating twice that we're getting way too little fiber and we're getting way too little fruits and vegetables into our diet and fiber is satiating. So you, people think they're going to be hungry on a more plant forward diet, but we tell them just try it for a week. You'll be surprised that you're not starving when you eat like a big salad with some legumes and things like that. So um, that's what what I encourage people to do is just flip that thinking to where your entree is the fruits and vegetables. And then you have this high quality protein. If you're vegan, and you can find that balance, that's awesome. And that's incredible. If you can't like that's okay. Like I I try to be really practical, even though I eat mainly plant based myself. Like when I met my husband, if it didn't have a slab of meat, it was not a meal. (laughs) So he's come a long way. There's several days a week, he doesn't eat any meat products but he will always that's that's part of who he is and I don't try to like push my thoughts on him that's just I I think it's important we consume about 50 grams more protein a day than we need on average in the U.S. I'm not saying everyone it's important to get protein it's the building blocks of our DNA (laughs) and our cells Um, but we overdo it so I think it's just really important that we find the right balance.
1: I, I completely agree. And it is a hard balance to find is also individual. So if you're listening to this, and you're like, Oh, my gosh, I could never go plant based. You know, I'm not plant based, but I or I'm not vegan, but I'm plant based, yeah. right? So I, yeah. I eat, um, the majority of my plate is plants, right? Mm-hmm. So um, like, like what she said, just you can look at like the portions of your plate, and you can just kind of start to, to switch it up and see how you feel. And when I, when I work with clients on this, it's amazing how in just a week or two, your energy can go way up, like maybe you're chronic illness, like, or your, your extreme weaking or whatever it is that you're dealing with doesn't completely go away in a week, but your vitality for life does shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think also something to, to, to talk about, and, th- and this will be a great kind of switch into the longevity diet that I know you based your, your company off of and kind of, let's talk about your, your specific farm mm-hmm. and what you're offering people is, you know, if you are going to go more vegan or plant-based because you've heard, you know, on this podcast or another podcast that it might be healthy for you, you know, keep in mind that there are a lot of junk foods that are vegan. <laughs> so, um, And there's Absolutely. a lot of junk foods that are gluten-free. So we wanna, again, it's, it's about yes. plant diversity. Um, that's what's really helpful for our microbiome, in our gut, it's what helps us so, so much and I would say on top of that, and this is this does throw a curveball, which is why I'm so glad that Jennifer's on today. Is getting good quality can be very challenging because think mm-hmm. about it, you guys. If what Jennifer is saying is that most of our farming, you know, um, I don't know how much, eighty percent is convention more conventional. No, ninety nine
2: percent is conventional. Okay, ninety nine percent of our farmland <laughs> in the U S. is organically farmed. So okay, it's so dirty. we
1: right we have a very small population of farms that are doing it this way or even doing organic which means that when you go to the store it can be challenging so why don't we talk about this opportunity that that jennifer has created here i know you created your kind of meal plans and things off of the longevity diet and you started to talk about that what is the longevity diet why is it so important and and how are you encompassing this in your in your company and and
2: how can people like buy this stuff from you yeah, so, so the Longevity Diet was um, designed by Dr. Walter Longo, who's a leading scientist in the area of longevity. So he was kind of one of the founding scientists that shifted the theory of aging. So o- almost all of our science has been focused on sick care and, um, you know, programmed cell death. You know, why are we dying? And he wanted to switch it over to programmed longevity. How do we live longer, healthier? And so that really fascinated me. I've been fairly obsessed with his research because what I loved about it, because I I also um, practice a lot of herbal medicine and things like that, just myself, a more kind of holistic approach to health. And then I see modern medicine as, you know, to fill the gaps where you can't do it holistically. And I, I do feel like they can come together, but we do way too much on the other side. So what he focused on is how do we, understand regions that already get it, and they have for generations, and they live longer and healthier, and he wanted to understand why. And he grew up in one, so he grew up in Calabria, Italy. So he was fascinated. I have six centenarians living in this tiny little area, and it's like normal for me. So what is going on here? So what he did is he then researched it at a more scientific level. What are the macronutrients that they eat? What are the micronutrients that they eat? How do they grow their food? What is their lifestyle like? And he outlined all that in the longevity diet book. And it's a plant forward diet. So he's not completely anti-meat, but it's a very small portion. Some of these regions, they never eat meat, mainly for a cost. Because in those areas, it's a small kind of town or village. Um, if they're growing meat, it's, it's for like celebrations. It's not in this huge quantity. So they really, that's more of a delicacy. So what we were excited about is understanding those macronutrients. And what's incredible is they share a very common macronutrient range in almost every longevity region of the world. So even though their vegetables might be a little bit different, they might be eating different legumes. All of them eat at least a half cup of legumes a day. Um, All of them have a very plant forward diet with very small amounts of meat or fish based protein. And so those are some of the things we incorporated into our diet. And what he showed is two things really majorly contribute to longevity. Fasting regimens. So all of these areas pass down different fasting regimens, prolonged fasting, which usually you do once or twice a year. And if you have chronic illnesses, maybe more. Um, And then circadian rhythm intermittent fasting. So that's what pretty much every region, they follow this circadian rhythm. They actually let their body decompress in the evening. They stop eating basically when the sun goes down. They let their um, cortisol drop and they let their melatonin rise and they get better sleep. They get better weight regulation. They get better detoxification at night. They get better cellular regeneration at night. So their bodies get into this natural rhythm. I'm going to just pause you. I'm yeah. going to pause you and <laughs> remind
1: the listeners because we talked about this. Remember on the PCOS uh, episode with Dr. Felice Gersh how important it is for specifically her research was around um, the circadian rhythm with PCOS because PCOS women seem to have a flip where their melatonin is and the cortisol are flipped so they're not getting that restful sleep. And But this is not just limited to PCOS, yeah. right? I mean, if you are someone who can't fall asleep, at night or you're you know you're kind of eating and grazing all day and then you you fall into this category, just know that you know it's okay. You know, where you are is completely okay. Um, and there there can be some of these shifts that are free. Uh, I love free. I love yeah, free things for our health. Um, and, and, and this is a huge one is is eating with the sun. Uh, Kind of, you know, uh, restricted eating windows can be very, very helpful. And um, I always like to keep it real here. So yesterday, I like wasn't hungry um, at dinner time, and I I fell into this. And I know everyone will relate to this. I was like, man, I'm not really hungry. Maybe I'll just wait. You know, Uh, maybe just wait an hour. It'll be okay. And then I wasn't hungry. And then it's like nine o'clock. I'm like, oh man, it's too late to eat. Then I'm like, but what if I get hungry? I wake up in the middle of the night. So then I eat. And then what happens? I woke up in the middle of the night sick because my stomach couldn't work right because our digestive enzymes go down at night and we like whatever. So my microbes in my gut thought, hey, it's like the middle of the day, it's party time. (laughs) 3 a.m. I'm up with a stomach ache because I ate too late. Yeah. So um, these are just like really, really subtle shifts that you can maybe not so subtle. They do take time. It's not like you you can just switch right into a fasting. Like diet overnight, but you can certainly like what Jennifer is mentioning is like kind of stop eating with the sun, give your body a break, and for all the reasons she just talked about. So, if you are dealing with chronic illness of any sort, this is probably a safe thing for you to do. You want to check with your healthcare provider, of course, but um, it's definitely helpful. So, this is interesting. So, the the longevity diets based off of these centenarians, right? Yes. That's
2: cent- centenarians, centenarians, so that's people that live past a hundred. Yeah. Healthy.
1: And they're eating mostly plants, some legumes and or legumes every day and very mineral, mi- min- minimal uh, animal protein. And they're, yeah. they're doing this circadian rhythm, uh, stopping eating. And what well, what else are they doing? Anything
2: And else? they also, their farming is, is regenerative farming. So it's, it's ah. farms, it's regenerative farms. So they're, they're growing that healthy, those healthy plants to then put in the body and a lot of the fiber, um, people don't realize the fiber in fruits and vegetables, a lot of it you can't even digest yourself, but your organism, uh, the microorganisms in your gut can. So you're feeding your, your microorganisms, which are over 50% of your body. So we kind of forget about that other side, um, feeding them all this fiber. And so they eat a very fiber-rich diet, which is which is basically all the, the fruits and vegetables that they eat. So that's really important. And then there's the other side of the longevity lifestyle, which is the active movement, things like meditation and mindfulness. You know, there's there's other pillars in longevity as well that are important. We focus on the food and then we focus a lot on education. So helping people understand when you hear circadian rhythm fast, people freak out about fasting and we're like, no, 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 just stop eating when the sun goes down and start eating when the sun goes up. Or if you have a different schedule, you can adjust it, but that's the general mindset. And people realize it's actually not that hard. If you say you like to eat at like 11 o'clock at night, you just start taking it down a half an hour each day to where you slowly get yourself trained. And after about 30 days, most people are like, this is easy. Like this sounded really like scary, but this is actually really easy. So it's probably, like you said, one of the free things that you can do that could have a really positive effect on your lifestyle and everything. Um, So yeah, those are, those are just some of the things. And the macro level, the macronutrient levels are very tightly balanced. And so, like I said, it's a lot of plant-based protein, but the protein is actually lower than most people. Um, You know, everyone panics about protein, but like I said, we consume 50 grams more than we need. And Longo's research shows there's two things that accelerate aging and they trigger aging genes. It's too much protein and it's sugar. And both of those, we consume about 50 grams. Ironically, we consume about 50 grams uh, more than we need per day of each of those. So we eat 50 grams more of added sugar. Um, that's, uh, what, 58 pounds of extra sugar per year per person. That's a lot of sugar.
1: Oh, my goodness. That is a lot of sugar. I was um, just writing that. Yeah.
2: So those two things we know absolutely accelerate our aging genes. And then things like fruits and vegetables that are high in phytonutrients can actually trigger cellular regeneration, which helps us with longevity. So, and so does fasting. So those are some of the things that much deeper research is now going into really understanding these longevity genes and how we trigger these and what types of things do. So that's what our diet is kind of focused on. And um, we, we kind of... Say farm to fork in 48 hours. So the good thing about us owning our own farm is we can we can literally confirm orders 24 hours before. The team can harvest early morning. They take to our warehouse. We prep it. It ships out the next day. So you have this really really fresh cycle, and we have almost no waste because we know exactly how many orders we're going to fulfill. And even if we like our produce boxes, we leave all the greens on because most of the greens you can eat. In the kits, most of it's already pre-portioned, so it's already cut. Um, but like carrot top you can make incredible carrot top pesto so there's a lot of fun recipes we give out um, with the produce boxes and stuff and then for the meal kits if we do cut carrot tops off they go right back to the farm in the compost so we really try to cycle things as much as possible
1: so Um, you so you have the meal kits and you also have um, a a produce box you mentioned yeah so so
2: we do farm fresh produce boxes they're only plant-based at this point so we don't do eggs from our chickens or anything like that Um, and then we do the meal kits which are pre-portioned so you have everything you need to make your meals lunches are already ready breakfasts are pretty much ready but the dinners you have to cook Um, and it's usually adding a sauce that we make and chopping up some vegetables and like stir frying them or baking them or something like that and then in about a month we're launching ready-made meals as well and we're trying to just cater to, we're calling it kind of repurposing fast food, right? One, one in three people in the US eat fast food every single day, which which shocks me. But I think if we can make eating healthy easier and more convenient, I think there's a lot that we can do to help human health. And so we're trying to make sure we cater to all lifestyles. We have a lot of dietitians. That are in our network and they're like, look, I just want your farm food. I know exactly the macros that I want to eat. And so, like, just send me a box of produce. And then we'll have people that are like, I need a little bit of help, but I like cooking. And then you have the rest of the group that are like, I don't want to do anything except just put this in the oven and be done with it in five minutes. And so we're trying to support all of those different diverse lifestyles so that you have almost no excuse to not eat healthy. And we're doing some really exciting stuff on also The cost of the food and things like that because we do we also treat our farm labor very fairly so they get benefits they get pay you know it's not through the roof but we think that's an important part of farming is to make sure you know there's farm programs where you can bring in people from other countries and pay them like six bucks an hour but (laughs) I think that you know it's one of the hardest jobs out there and I think people should be compensated properly for it so you know our food is not cheap Um, but we're trying to make it more affordable by other things like insurance coverage and things like that. So that's a big mission as well for us with food as medicine is to have that food pharmacy as well. Um, so people that need it the most have access to it and we're doing some pretty awesome stuff with food insecurity, um, with a few local farming organizations. So, you know, there's a lot of diverse work we do to also make that, more affordable we're constantly looking at how can we take the price down how can we collaborate to have things subsidized in different ways so we can make you know we believe that food is a right not a privilege um and everyone should have equal access to it so we're just working to get there (laughs) it's going to take some time thank you for talking about
1: the food insecurity and and the price point because i was going to ask i'm sure it's not cheap to eat this way and you know it's yeah it, it is a right and yet we we have this situation in this country which is so diabolical in terms of um you know the socioeconomic impact of availability to food to good quality food so thank yeah. you for doing that work to not only provide your farmers with enough money and benefits but then to try on the back end to make it affordable for people i'm sure that is a really really challenging mission that you're on and once hopefully once you break the code you can transfer it to other people
2: who want to do this work as well for sure for sure and there's incredible progress being made not just by me but there's a lot of people that are kind of trying to lead the way with regenerative farming. And like I said, carbon farming. And then also on the health side, there's incredible bodies of doctors that are super passionate about this and trying to bring it forward. And so there's momentum. It's, it's going to be the future. And so, um, you know, we're just trying to, to move it along. Where can people
1: find out more about regenerative farming? Um, obviously, y- we will list all of your stuff in the in the show notes and everything as well. But, what, you know, you just mentioned there's a lot of different people kind of at this movement. Where, if people are interested in learning more, where yeah. do they go?
2: So there's, I, I think there's two incredible resources that I really love. So one is the Rodale Institute, which is on the East Coast, so I'm a little bit biased because I'm in New Jersey, but um, they're doing incredible things as an institution for regenerative farming. So they're basically uh, regenerative and organic farming, you know, um, it is a farm, and they're they're an education facility, so they're doing incredible work with a lot of doctors. Um, I also really love the book Drawdown. It's not just about farming, but it's called Drawdown, and it's about the hundred things we could do especially in the US but globally to start reversing climate change and there's a lot of elements of farming in there and there's things what I love about that book is it it brought a lot of scientists together and incredible people and they obviously there's a lot of global things in there but there's also a lot of things that every individual in the US anyone across the globe can implement in their day-to-day lives so it because a lot of people are like I can't do anything like I put a solar panel on my roof And, you know, I I try to not use plastic and this and that, but they feel like they're not making a difference. And in reality, we can make a huge difference. Every single individual, things like eating a little bit less meat, you would be completely shocked at how much just taking one day a week, if you're eating meat every day, if you just take out one day a week and try to eat plant-based, it is incredible the impact that that can have. So I love that book too, as a resource it's called drawdown and it's just incredible. And it's all about drawing down our carbon. Like how can we start sequestering the carbon? How can we start emitting less of it? Um, so those are my two favorite resources. And then obviously the longevity diet book, if you want to understand how to eat like a centenarian, um, the, the cool thing and we'll give you for your audience as well. We, we, um, try to give the book because we want as many people to understand the education behind it. And there's a lot of awesome free recipes in the back of it from these longevity regions. Some of those are in meal kits. Some of them, obviously we have a lot more of a pool for meal kits, but, um, we just want people to understand that you can do this. You can even do this on a budget at home. Like obviously we provide the convenience, but people can eat organically. If you look at a balanced diet from a Centennial region, they eat a lot of beans. Beans are not very expensive, even organic. Um, you can eat frozen fruits and vegetables. There's a lot of things you can do if you put the effort in. We obviously provide the convenience factor to it, but we want people to eat this way no matter what. So that's a nice thing about that book as well is you can learn about it. It's very deep in the science side in portions, but then it's written kind of like a novel in the rest of it. So if you don't care about the clinical data of you know cancer and these different things, you can skip over that part and just read about the story, which is amazing. So-
1: Okay, so we've got the Rodell Institute, the Drawdown book, and the Longevity Diet book, which is, of course, how you created all of your, your
2: meals and, and kind of the background behind your, your yeah. company. And then, and then we also, on our website, nutritionforlongevity.com, we do a blog, and a lot of that is on farming, regenerative farming, and recipes and things like that. So you can find that on our website. We're kind of constantly rotating in new education material. And we have a newsletter, like if people want to learn more, um, we're, we're sending a lot of education out on a regular basis on like podcasts like this, just letting people be aware that this is out there. And there's awesome people like you educating people on how to, you know, help their bodies and live a healthier life. That's amazing. And so people can buy your,
1: your food on nutrition, nutritionforlongevity.com. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, I think that's probably a good place to stop today. We've covered <laughs> so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and listen to some of the statistics that you just knowledge dropped throughout this episode. It's like incredible. For For everyone listening, um, I hope that you guys will go over to nutritionforlongevity.com and check out this amazing work. Maybe check out some of the meals. I'm excited to try them myself.
2: Yeah.
1: And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, and uh, we'll just close out. So this is uh, Sophie Shepard on the She Talks Health Show. We just interviewed Jennifer Maynard, and we have been talking all about uh, nutrition for longevity, um, which is Jennifer's... Amazing co- company that provides meal kit services and uh, regenerative farming, organic farming to to your door. So, I hope you guys found this really, really helpful. I'll be back next week with a new episode. And in the meantime, you can go over to shetalkshealth.com or follow me on Instagram or Facebook at she Talks health to learn the latest in women's menstrual health and digestive support.
0: Over and out, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Sophie Shepard is a functional nutrition practitioner and founder of SHE. Sophie helps busy women all over the world go from menstrual cycle chaos to optimal hormonal alignment so they can live their lives fully without being held back by their bodies, using the power of functional lab testing combined with life-changing mindset shifts and integrating the entire body's system. If the only thing holding you back is your health, it's time to stop letting hormonal chaos run your world. Book your health discovery call today by going to SheTalksHealth.com. Are you done medicating and guessing your way through the exhaustion, pain and irritability caused by menstrual cycle and digestive health issues? Sophie Shepard, founder of She, will help you go from symptom-ridden and confused to finally having clarity about how your menstrual cycle works and confidence in your health strategy in just 10 days. If you are ready to stop living with painful, heavy, irregular, or non-existent periods, no energy, brain fog, anxiety, and digestive issues, then check out the 10-Day Digestive and Hormone Reboot at SheTalksHealth.com. Thank you for joining us this week for She Talks Health. Please join Sophie Shepard again next week for another episode of our show on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Have a great week.